Nasu. This afternoon we return to <coughs> mindfulness of breathing. This time shifting, of course, from the infirmary, from the full body awareness, introducing a bit more effort, a bit more will, as we explicitly begin cultivating stability of attention. So in the first phase that we did yesterday, a very, really good foundation to establish, there's very little in the way of discipline, of effort. There is a bit of effort, a little bit of will, but it's a very soft touch, right? Because it's primarily just in the out-breath of just releasing thoughts, releasing thoughts, just being present. Thoughts come up, just releasing every out-breath, releasing, releasing, releasing. So not a whole lot of effort, not a whole lot of will involved. So if we take the analogy of raising a small child and the different ways that a, a, a traditional Tibetan parent will raise the child, well, as I mentioned earlier, when the child is still just a baby, one year old, one and a half years old, there's really no discipline at all. Uh, it's just taking care of the baby and giving a lot of love. And so that's pretty much what the infirmary is like. There's hardly any discipline. And they're just releasing, releasing, releasing. You could call that taking out the diapers. <laughs> just more poop comes up and just release it. More poop comes out and release it, release it, release it. Seems like there's an awful lot of poop. But there you go. You just keep on releasing it, you know. There you go, there's the first phase. But by the time the child, as you might recall, the child, by the time the child is articulate, can understand, then some gentle discipline comes in with the same motivation of loving kindness, of affection, but now a bit of discipline. And so that's what we introduce here. So you will certainly recall, in the first phase, it's a matter of deepening, deepening sense of relaxation without losing clarity. And also without just getting, letting the mind just wander and wander and wander. That's the whole issue of release. That you're not just letting your mind going to daydreaming. You didn't need to fly to Phuket for that. So you are releasing. Uh, but now as we move into the second phase, focusing on the rise and fall of the abdomen, now there is an explicit cultivation of stability, effort given to maintaining continuity of attention. So really kind of now trying to move from, move from stage one to stage two, establishing more and more continuity of the mindfulness. So this takes a little bit of discipline, okay? a little bit of effort. But it's again attenuated by or alternating with that same sense of relaxation, just as you were doing in the first phase. Relaxing, releasing, everyone kind of like, oh, school's out, it's recess, you know. Oh, just releasing like that. But now instead of just releasing during inhalation, then there's this arousal. Then there's a focusing. And it's got a target, pretty clear target, the abdomen. The bare tactile sensations there, focusing in, arousing, and then and then. But again, it's such a short. It's like for little kids. I think their classroom periods are really short. Their attention spans are pretty short. So that and then there's playtime, a little bit of classroom, a little bit of studying, and then playtime. Right? I think that's how it works, and that is how it works here. Very short sessions, like five seconds, however long it takes to breathe in. That's where the discipline is, and then oh, it's recess, out into the yard, you know, releasing, releasing. That oscillation can be very soothing. The arousal during in-breath, overcoming laxity, just being spaced out, dull. And the release with the every out-breath, releasing, not cutting off, just letting go of the rumination, the involuntary thoughts, images, memories, and so on. That's the gist of it. And in this phase also, to the extent that you find it helpful, and I emphasize that, 
to the extent that you find it helpful, then counting the breaths may be introduced. One of the easiest things to do when one starts to count the breaths is to shift the focus of mindfulness away from the breath and to the counting. And that's really a very, very crude, really crude level of shamatha. So we're going, one, two, almost kind of the bullfrog's approach to, to shamatha. Sound familiar? So bullfrogs don't go very deep into samadhi. So the counting is there, but it's not it's staccato, really short, brief. Right there at the very kind of wait, 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 wait. Pop it in. And then quietly, as you're releasing out, releasing all thoughts, all the way through the very last drop, until the next breath just flows in effortlessly, quietly, focusing, and then real quick count. Two. And that's it. And the, the analogy I like best, I think I thought of it during this retreat, yeah, because maybe because I walk up and down that road so often, down towards the uh, sports facility, uh, is speed bumps. Speed bumps. You know what they're there for, so the people on their little motor scooters don't go zipping around at 50 miles an hour, uh, and all the other vehicles. And so there it is, and the speed bumps are placed periodically, and it's very similar that. It's very similar, because we can get easily carried away with speeding along on our little jalopies of rumination, you know, and then a little one, whoop, and you know, what? It kind of pops you out. It interrupts the flow of rumination. One, oh yeah, Phuket, mind center. I'm sure there's a reason I'm here. I'll think of it. I'll think of it momentarily. <laughs> but it just kind of interrupts the flow of the rumination that can go on for many, many seconds or even minutes at a time. Just you know. Spiling, spiling around, around and around and around. So it breaks the continuity of it. That's what it's good for. It's not cracking the whip. It's not cutting off. It's just that gentle reminder. It's like a little tap on the side of the head. A little speed bump. Oh yeah. Time to cut. Time to release. And then you're releasing into the out breath. Right? So, but use it only insofar as it's helpful. And that is, there is a point, certainly when you've achieved stage four, counting would be definitely more clutter than benefit. Because you're already maintaining continuity, so what do you need speed bumps for? Then you're on the, you know, then you're on a, like the Indianapolis 500. You just keep on going and going and going. You don't need speed bumps on the Indi- Indianapolis 500. So when you have continuity, then don't break the continuity with counting. Totally counter- counterproductive. <clears throat> but then experiment. You may find it helpful. A lot of in the Tibetan tradition, after centuries, they'll start out a session with 21 breaths, 21, 21 speed bumps. You know, and then get on to the main practice, just to get the whole mind to calm down a little bit, right? Slow down, get back to whatever, you know, to the present moment. So you might try just try, try counting 21 breaths and then stopping, or 10 breaths. You might count 10 breaths and then not do it for a while. And then if you see that the kind of mind's getting a bit sloppy, just kind of wandering around like a dog off a leash, then you can count another 10 breaths, you know, just to bring it back again. Or if you find it helpful, if you don't find it oppressive, that's one thing. You just don't want your practice to be oppressive, like some very stern parent, you know, glaring down at the child. Really light. But if you find it's just kind of a helpful little reminder, then you can continue counting all the way through. So this kind of light touch, this goes back to Asanga, 1500 years ago. One of the greatest of the Indian Mahapandits, 
bodhisattvas, contemplatives. And he wrote in his Shravagabhumi, he wrote at length about mindfulness of breathing. He gave different types, different methods of counting. But he also commented, use it only if it's helpful. And for some people, they might not find it helpful at all. In which case, don't worry about it. Then just, you know, develop your continuity within continuity. So, one other point, And that is this ongoing sense of relaxation. We we just can't get enough of it. Keep on going back there. Wherever you are, whether you're really intrigued by awareness of awareness, settling the mind, whether you like focusing on the nostrils, mindfulness of breathing, keep on coming back to the relaxation. Just tilling the soil, deepening the root system will always serve you well, both during your time here as well as time afterwards. And in that regard, one point might be helpful. And that is, some of you can quite understandably get a little bit impatient. You've been here for, gosh, three and a half weeks, and the mind's still wandering. Fancy that. There must be really something wrong with you. After three and a half weeks and your mind hasn't stopped wandering, my goodness, what's wrong with you? Right. After 40, 50, 60 years, maybe only 20 years, but still, you know, 20 to 60 years of habituating to that, how strange that it doesn't just go away after three weeks. Of course, not that strange. So one can feel, well, and of course I've tried to encourage you in some of the one-on-one meetings, that the habit there is mindless. There's no person in there who's out to get you. You know, I'm, you know, not there. There's no one there. It's a mindless machine. It's just a habit. You know, it's just that. It's mindless. It's not developing more energy. That is, if you start decreasing that habit, the little habit can't call to, call to, call to the back and say, bring on the reserves. Bring on the reserves. More help here. You know, there's no help. I mean, what they've got is what they've got. I mean, it's just a habit, but there's no backup. If you start eroding that habit, then it's eroded. But they, it can't call, you know, give me Tracy's, give me Tracy's wandering mind, you know, get me some help here. You know, she, she gets keepers, you know, can't borrow it. And so it's just that, it's this kind of mindless force, mindless momentum, habit. And if you are persistent with intelligence as a human being, with inspiration, with skillful means and so forth, and this is just a mindless, dumb force, and you are persistent, then I think it's just rational to think you're going to win. Because it's not getting any stronger, it's not intelligent. If you start getting really clever, learning how to really, really settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, that sweet spot at the very end, and really relaxing there, you start getting more and more Expert, expert. I'm really a virtuoso of this. Your wandering mind is not getting more expert. It's not developing more skills. It has no reinforcements. It's just what it is. So if you're getting better and better, it's not getting better and better. It's just kind of slugging along there. So that should be encouraging. But the point I'm really getting at here is that this is all on the level of habit. All on the level of habit. All within the domain of coarse mind. That's where all this rumination is taking place. And it's rooted in unknowing. It's rooted in unknowing. Because, of course, as soon as you are aware that your mind is wandering, it's no longer wandering. Right? So it's rooted in unawareness, which means it's rooted in ignorance. Right? And your practice is rooted in awareness, which means it's rooted in knowing. So one is more reality-based, one more is unreality-based. So that's is kind of optimistic, bodes well for the future. 
But consider this too, and maybe it's a little bit of an article of faith, but not blind faith. And that is that it's not just your intelligence, your effort, your level of expertise waging war with the, the habits, which again, they're well entrenched. Well entrenched. I mean, they're big habits. There's no question about that. But it's, that's not all there is to it. You know, If we look at it only developmentally, it can really look that way. My ability is the stability and vividness are really, really poor. The, the, the habits of dullness and excitation are really, really strong. This is like David and Goliath, or Goliath and David. You know, I, I know which one I am. I'm the little pipsqueak with the sling. Where's my rock? Where's my rock? You know, uh, and so it can look like you're totally, how do you say, overwhelmed, facing pretty stiff opposition. And I know for the first twenty years of my own training, which was largely Galupa and almost entirely developmental, I know something I felt frequently is no matter how hard I'm trying, no matter how much I practice, I'm never doing enough. I did have that feeling. I think I wasn't alone. I could, you know, if I'm practicing eight hours a day, why aren't you doing nine? If you're doing ten, why aren't you doing eleven? Why is your mind scattered so much? You've been practicing this long, you still haven't gotten further? You're a big disappointment. You know? And you're never trying hard enough. You never will. <laughs> you know, it really kind of felt that way. You know, if it's all developmental, then, you know, how much effort do you need to give? More than you are. You know, that was always the kind of that whole kind of pressure there. It was really exhausting. And I noticed back then, back, back in the early 70s, I think most of us had what we called, we just called it lung. Back in the early 70s, most of us just said, do you have lung? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. I've been really studying hard. <laughs> How many Vajrasafa did you do today? <laughs> 500. I feel really pure. <laughs> <laughs> Man, oh man, you know, when it's pure developmental, it can be just so exhausting. Because you feel you got no backup. I mean, whatever you give, whatever effort you gave, that's all that was got delivered. You know, and you're feeling this, mat- and then the geishas are so happy to tell you, oh, Alan just mentioned 20 to 40, 60 years of habit. Think about countless eons of past lives. That's how much habit. And good luck with that. <laughs> Man, oh man. And then, not that's not to mention all the karma you've got. That's just waiting there like Godzilla. Waiting to just crush you. So the development approach has a lot of truth to it, but it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so is it, do we have any reserves? Is there anything we can tap into apart from just sheer discipline and effort and developing motivation and striving diligently? Is there anything more that we can, ta- that we can tap into? Any other more resources? And the answer is, then we just kind of look at it from the other side. And it's there in the Galupa tradition, but each tradition highlights certain elements and therefore doesn't highlight other elements as much. So it's there in all the traditions. But do you have anything else on your side as you seek to refine your mind, balance your attention, achieve shamatha? Is there, is there anything else on your side as you're facing this massive opposition of tension in the body, scatteredness of the mind, dullness, exhaustion, poor sleep, and so forth. Do you have any other allies you can call on? Anything come to mind? Yes, Kay. Yeah? That's true. Congratulations to all of you. (laughs) But 
man, do I suck. <laughs> so it's true what you say, but they're kind of all out there. And there they are, these great beings. They've achieved shamatha and vipassana and all of that. And then there are us Westerners. We don't even have the right skin color. Or the right genes, you know. So it's true what you say. There's a lot of power in that. But it's kind of their power. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, when they're born and rainbows appear over their, you know, over their birthplace and the flower, flowers fall from the sky, it kind of makes you feel like maybe they're not like us. <laughs> Do something by having visions of Dakinis and going off to the pure land of Padmasambhava when he was an infant. You know, that gives a rise to a lot of reverence when it kind of makes me feel, I think you're another species. Because all I did when I was, I mean, there was something r- remarkable that happened when I was born. Some of you may know the story. It's pretty impressive. When I was born, Pasadena, yeah, something happened. I was popped out of the womb, lying there on my back, and uh, the doctor was hovering over me, doing whatever he was doing, and I peed right over his head. <laughs> it was this golden arc. <laughs> Very impressive, they say. I don't know exactly what it means. But it means I had major pee power. I guess that's what it means. I don't know if it means anything more than that. But I don't recall any rumors of flowers falling in the sky or things like that. So just a kid who really knows how to pee. So all of that is true, but in terms of not something we get from outside. And Kay's point is perfectly legitimate. There is power to lineage, to transmission, the great examples of other adepts and so forth. All of that certainly has. But in terms of what you bring to it, what do you bring to it besides your bad habits? Buddha nature, yeah, wherever that is. <laughs> no, it's quite true. Um, but where did I put it? You know, it's got to be here someplace. What, what else do we have? And it's perfectly true, but what else do we have? I can't quite hear. That's true. There is not only the momentum of mental afflictions, of OCDD and all of that, but as the months and years goes by, there's certainly, there's a mental practice, and that's not to be discounted. Yes, anything else? Danny? The four immeasurables? Yes, those are capacities. When we start out, we may not feel there, there's much to them. I mean, there's a really nice idea. Uh, they are to be cultivated. The more they're cultivated, then they are major allies. There's no question about that. Without being cultivated, uh, then one can feel, well, you know, they come and go, but they're not very reliable friends, if they're not cultivated. Diego, that's what I was fishing for, the substrate consciousness. Yeah, I was fishing for something, and, and these were a lot of good answers. But, but I was referring specifically to shamatha within this context, and there are so many, many important practices. This is one of many. But in terms of just specifically shamatha practice and the momentum of just the sheer habit of distraction, mental wandering, dullness, and so forth and so on, and then our expertise, our intelligence, our discipline, our motivation, what we bring to it, it's like these two waves crashing, and so often we feel just overwhelmed. You know, the habit is so much stronger than our little practice that's just getting off the ground, like a little baby getting up its wigs, and the tsunami knocks it flat on its back again. But what we have that we don't get from outside, and it doesn't just come from years of practice, because what can you say if I'm, you've just started practicing? I don't have years of practice of momentum, and, or, you know. I don't have that momentum from years of practice. But wherever you're, whether, whether you're really very much a beginner, or whether you're an old, old hand, you know, 
practicing for a long time. One thing you do bring to the practice. And you don't really have much choice about it. You don't have any choice at all. You bring to the practice is your substrate consciousness. And at that level of consciousness, there's no distraction. It's not by nature turbulent. The substrate consciousness itself is not veiled. It doesn't come with its own inborn, built-in veils, obscurations. They're added onto it. And it doesn't end, so end. And it's also, you know, by nature it's bliss. That'll take some time to discover, but there it is. But let's just shave that, shave off the bliss for a while and just look at those two qualities. The very nature of the substrate consciousness is still. You tap into it every time you fall deep asleep. The stillness of the mind. It's quiescent. Non-conception. That's, that's already there. And the sheer luminosity, the clarity, the brightness is that's an intrinsic quality of the substrate consciousness. And of course, it gets veiled, but it doesn't get blown out. It doesn't get eliminated, it just gets covered over. So we're bringing the innate qualities of stability and vividness to the practice as we're meeting with waves of dullness and distraction and agitation and OCDD. We're meeting waves of that and we're, and we're applying waves of our practice. But what we have on our side is the innate stillness, the non-conceptuality and the innate luminosity of the own substrate consciousness. And so then one can ask, well, then how come I'm not getting the full benefit of right, right now? Why haven't I already achieved shamatha when I already have substrate consciousness? And then there's a really good answer to that. And that is, why do we feel that the mind gets overwhelmed by distraction, obsessive, compulsive thinking? Only because of grasping. Only because of grasping. That is, even after you've achieved shamatha, and this is from people like Asanga, I mean masters, people speak with lion-like, lion-like authority. Asanga was one of the greats. Uh, he said, even after you've achieved shamatha, you're just resting there, let's say in the subtle continuum of mental consciousness, your sensory perceptions imploded into mental awareness, you're just resting there, you've achieved shamatha, congratulations. Do thoughts still come up? Images, thoughts come up? Yes, occasionally. And the image that always comes to mind when I mention it is I had an aquarium with fish in it, a little aquarium fish, when I was a kid. I loved it. Turn off all the lights in the room and that beautiful color of the aquarium and seeing the, the blue tetras and zebra fish and the angel fish and so forth. Quite magical, right? And what you see there in, that, in, that, in the beauty of the aquarium is sometimes from the sand down on the bottom, a single bubble will just somehow get released. And you'll see it there in the stillness of the overall water. You'll see a little bubble come up like that. So you all know what it looks like. You notice the fish don't freak out. They don't say tsunami. <laughs> they just—they hardly even notice. It's just a little, you know. Even if you were a mote of dust on the surface, you would hardly even notice. It would be, blip, blip. it's over. That's all there was to it. So that's it. When you're resting there so deeply free of grasping, not absolutely, but quite deeply free of grasping in the substrate consciousness. And a thought comes up. It comes up and it just comes and hardly even a ripple. There's no grasping onto it. No perturbation. No excitation. And no dimming. So, why we get 
carried away, why we get so caught up in the distracting thoughts and so forth, is not because they're there, but because we grasp onto them. It's grasping that makes the awareness have a sense of being in motion. So, that's something not to do then. Releasing grasping. Not doing. In other words, we're back to discovery mode. Not grasping. And then likewise, sometimes, dullness comes up. Dullness, or at least laxity, but in the early phases, just call call it dullness. Dullness comes up like a shroud, like black velvet kind of covering over the mind. But some of you are already getting the taste, the possibility, experiential possibility, of being able to be clearly aware of dullness arising. So it's like having a, a bright light which clearly illuminates the dark shroud. But the dark shroud doesn't cover and snuff out or obliterate the light. It's there, but you're vividly aware of it. And that's a real possibility. That's what happens when you fall asleep consciously. Is the, the veil does come over. Your mind is falling asleep. But instead of your identifying with this with cognitive fusion, instead of your being caught in the fog, fusing with the fog, with the dullness itself, and then just going belly up and losing consciousness, the fog comes, but you're down below it, illuminating the fog. You are where the substrate consciousness is, rather than you're being up there where the fog is. So you're just inside the fog, and of course you can no longer see the substrate consciousness. So the more you can release the grasping onto the fog, onto the dullness, then it does not obscure, because you're resting at a deeper level, beneath the fog, and you're resting more closer to the substrate consciousness. So in both cases, while certainly there's a role for effort, for developing, developing, and so forth, bottom line behind all of that is if you, if we, if we or to the extent that we can simply release grasping onto everything that agitates the mind and release grasping and the cognitive fusion onto every, every shroud, every obscuration, everything that dulls the mind then we are descending. The mind, our own awareness, is descending into its natural state. And we don't need to cultivate stability or vividness, but rather we're just slipping into it. The stillness, the vividness that were already there. And if we can descend into it without lack of grasping, then in that stillness we experience the profound serenity, the shamatha, which means tranquility, or quiescence. We experience that Simultaneously, here's the balance, simultaneously with the stillness, which can never be, ever so easily be dull, simultaneously with that, there's the luminosity. So luminosity and stillness, a fusion of those two. Sounds a little bit like luminosity and emptiness to me. Sounds a little bit like wisdom and skillful means to me. With that fusion of luminosity and non-conceptuality and absence and emptiness of thought, out of that emerges what? Any guesses? Any guesses? Really good guess. Bliss. Bliss arises. What's that? What's that? No. If it were a guess, it would be a really good one. No, that's it. That's what comes out. The stillness and the luminosity then the bliss is unveiled. It doesn't really generate it so much, but there it is. Yeah. So that's where the bliss comes from. 
If you have only the non-conceptuality and no bliss, excuse me, no luminosity, it's no bliss, it's, it's smothered. If you have only luminosity, but none of that stillness, that ease, that quiet, then there's no bliss either. Because it just being, winds up being wired, tense, hyper. That's not blissful. So the two together. And then the bliss is part of the party. So they're all yours. When you leave here, you'll, you'll bring them with you. You'll take them with you. When you came here, you brought them with you. And so when you consider that you have those innate qualities of subject consciousness, and that's not the deepest level that Deborah was speaking of, Buddha nature, well, that's you really your core. That's your deepest resource, natural resource. But just on this more relative level, just on the relative level of shamatha, yes, there's a lot of momentum of distraction and all of that. And there are these very skillful means from the lineage, from the blessings of the teachers, and so forth and so on. All of that is true. But it's kind of like having, what do they call it, an ace in the hole. Some special, something special in reserve. Something that maybe your opposition didn't know about. You have a special secret weapon. It's the qualities beyond substrate consciousness. So that's kind of a special boon that you bring to you, bring to the practice. Now if you're aware that the, the secret key to unlock those qualities of the substrate consciousness is a release of grasping, then it doesn't get so complicated. You don't need to be really clever. Just keep on relaxing more and more and more deeply. And letting go, letting go. Does that take willpower? Yes, it does. But it's the willpower of release and not the willpower of grasping, pushing, striving. The willpower of discovery rather than the willpower of development. So, now that I've spoken so much, I can speak much less while we're practicing. Please find a comfortable position. Settle the body in its natural state and the respiration in its natural rhythm.
and releasing for the moment your pursuit of hedonic well-being, your hopes and fears, release the past and the future. Content to cultivate or unveil genuine happiness in the present moment. For just a little while, let's return to open presence. So effortless, so light, open, relaxed. common thread is resting your awareness without distraction and without grasping. Letting your awareness rest in stillness because it is free of grasping.
and letting your eyes close if you wish, let them be hooded or open, as you wish. Then to let your awareness descend to the level of the abdomen, in this purely witnessing mode without visualizing or thinking about the abdomen. Quietly note the sensations of the rise and fall of the belly with each in and out breath, arousing with each in breath, releasing without each with each out breath. Seeking to maintain a flow of continuity of your mindfulness engaged with the continuity of the sensations of the in and out breath. Introduce counting the breaths insofar as it's helpful. To the best of your ability, maintain continuity of mindfulness. And monitor the flow of mindfulness with introspection. Relaxing, releasing and returning in response to excitation. Arousing your interest and refocusing in response to laxity. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
So we'll start with the shortest one. There are four questions here. One of them is quite a letter. So could you explain what medium and subtle excitation is like with respect to the practice of settling the mind in its natural state? It's, it is subtle. Because, of course, the difference between getting caught up in excitation and simply being aware of the thoughts, memories, images, desires, and so forth arising entirely focuses on the issue of grasping. Right? And that is, you may be aware of them, relatively free of grasping. They just arise and pass like that little bubble arising in the aquarium. The thoughts, images come up, but they don't have that ripple effect. They don't lead to chains of thoughts, sequence, because the chains are held together with grasping. So they just come up, and people have done this for a while. They they do find that you kind of enter into, into a domain where you get, it, the, the word in physics is stochastic, and that is just a little bit of chops, a little bit of f- fragments, like, almost like bone fragments, like a little thought here, is it 7 o'clock? I like cream. Look at the sunset. I feel crappy. Just utterly disjointed, and not even full sentences sometimes. Just like that, or just a flickering image that, like, who do you belong to? <laughs> and it's gone. This is actually a good sign. It shows now that you're just getting this free flow of images, thoughts, whatever, coming up, but they're not connected in a coherent fashion with grasping. You're not getting into the storyline and fusing with it. So, but what's the difference there between, again, the excitation and simply being present? It's all about grasping. And grasping is not binary. It's not like, are you doing it, are you not? It's more like, how much are you doing it? Because even after you've achieved shamatha, here's a pop question, after you've achieved shamatha, is there still grasping? Yeah, there is. I like luminosity, I like bliss, I like, I like non-conceptuality. That's grasping, that's preference. You know, that's what you need to then. That's the next stage now. There we are. Or this, the grasping, is there an implicit, quiet sense of there being my mind? Someone here. Yep, there is. So that's grasping. So it goes to layer and layer and layer, even after you've had pointing out instructions, receive pointing out instructions in Rigpa. Is there still grasping? Yeah, that's why you're not a Vidyadhara. And so, it is subtle. So how do you know? Well, if we take the, the very straightforward example of following the breath, then you, you will recall that your your attention has strayed, and this is on a course level, course analysis. This is not a, a fine moment by moment, micro by micro, micro moment analysis. It's like over a period of a second. So on a course level, during a second, during that period, you're mostly kind of drifting off to some some thought, but you feel for that second that you weren't totally disengaged. You're kind of still kind of in touch with it, but this is more interesting. Almost anything is more interesting than the sensations of the breath at some phase of the practice. So you recall that. That's called medium excitation. And subtle excitation is you really are primarily on the breath, but you're being cut up a little bit, snagged, pulled away a little bit by thoughts that are capturing your attention like out of the corner of the eye. So you're saying, oh yeah, what's, 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 what's going on there? You know. So that's subtle. So that's in a really nice, clear object. You've got something to focus on. But now you're focusing on the space of the mind and its contents. And it is more subtle. But it's now a matter of kind of slip-sliding along that gradient of grasping. You've already experienced this, though. 
rather like a quasi-lucid dream. There's another case that's not binary. Are you totally lucid or are you totally not lucid? Well, sometimes you are totally not lucid. Like just sometimes there's course excitation. You've completely forgotten it. But once you become lucid, then how lucid? Can you walk through a wall, face forward? You know? Can you have your, your, your body sawed in hand with a chainsaw? And smiling? You know? How lucid are you? Well, then we have a whole gradient. So, very similar to that. So you're recognizing that this is that you're dreaming, but then to what extent do you still get caught in, get, getting caught up in it? You know? And so that's exactly it for settling the mind. You're aware of the mind, but to what extent are you kind of being dragged off to the referent, whatever the thought, the image is, to what extent are you being dragged off to the referent? Okay? So you could be primarily on, the re- on, on, primarily on the referent, but still having that sense, yeah, I'm still aware of the mind, yeah, but, but this is more interesting. You know? Or you could be primarily on the mind, but still dragged off, feeling the tug, feeling the tug off to the referent of the thought. Okay? So, can't use a whole lot of more words than that. At least I don't have much more at my disposal right now. But that's what it is. Is that is insofar as you are resting there without excitation, you are not moving. Your awareness is like space. And you're not moving, not because you're holding on to a wire tenaciously with both claws, but you're just hovering there right in space. Thoughts come and go, thoughts come and go, and you're just not pulled at all. There's no... There's no hook. As soon as you find yourself in motion, that's when there's grasping, and that's when there's excitation. Okay? So, once again, we're back to relaxation, the relaxation of releasing grasping. And the second question here is, how about medium subtle excitation? Oh, medium and subtle laxity with respect to the same practice. That one is really the same as in other and the other practices. And it's something you can only determine within it. And I would say, don't even bother right now. Unless you're up there on stage five or six. If you are, then this is a real concern. But recall on stages one through four, the term doesn't even come up. We're dealing with dullness here. Okay, much coarser term. Stage four to five, then you're over, you're identifying coarse laxity, and that's what you're freed from as you try to make the transit from stage four to stage five, and that's internal. It's an evaluation you can only make internally. And that's on, in those really good stage four sessions, when you feel like Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, quite clear. As clear as it gets, like, whoa, that was a good clear session. Okay, we're going to call that one free of coarse laxity. And then your next session won't be quite as clear. I'm going to call that coarse laxity. It's relative. It's not an absolute scale. So the really good sessions, when you're just bright, you're clear, you're very present, okay, Never mind medium laxity and subtle laxity. Never mind that. That's down the road. But right now, oh, I was really sharp, really clear, really bright. Good. No coarse laxity. Whoop. Not as much. Coarse laxity. And then ask that question all over again when you're going from stage five to six, six to seven. What were the really good sessions? Oh, not quite as good. That's medium laxity. Get up to the stage seven. What's really sharp, radiantly clear? That's no subtle, subtle laxity. When is it not quite so good? Subtle laxity. Okay? But it's all internal. Oh, lasso. So there's one. And that was from, thank you. And here's from Eric. So, two related questions. It is said that by merely having attained shamatha, one's body may remain fresh after the, after the point of death. How is it so, and in which bardo does one linger? 
Well, which part of that's that's a wide open question. That is, there's no. It's it indeterminate, indeterminate. So I've not read. Maybe you have. I've not read how long the body remain main main memory. That is, if you're still in shamadev, if you're still in that dark near attainment. Okay, the final phase on the dying process, at which point you are dead. So it's just completed. But prior to the the arising of clear light of death. Okay. So in that phase, so Dujum Ningba says, and I read it just a month or two ago, I think he said you can remain in that dark near attainment where your mind has now totally dissolved and is, in terms of this lifetime, irreversibly dissolved into the substrate consciousness. I believe he said you can stay there for up to six hours. Okay? And it may be uh, just long enough to drink a cup of tea, except for you won't be drinking tea. Something just a matter of minutes. Um so there's that flexibility. Well, as long as that's still there, as long as you are resting in that state, in other words, the the substrate consciousness is still present in the body, it's not going to deteriorate. There's still consciousness there. It won't deteriorate as long as the subtle, subtle, very subtle mind is there, clear light of death. As long as that's there in the indestructible drop at the heart, or bindu at the heart, the body won't decompose. That's why we get these people lingering for days or even weeks, because it's still there. So it's really as if the body temporarily becomes timeless. Because you can't say it's alive, but it's not dead in the sense that dead bodies decompose, and it's not doing that either. So it's kind of like there in the middle ground. Um, but is it the case that if you spend a couple of hours, let's say, uh, just resting in the substrate consciousness, because you've done well in shamatha, and then you slip into the clear light of death, or it, it emerges, and then you just don't recognize it, and you slip right on through, and then you're off into the bardo, the bardo of dhammata, or ultimate reality and dhammata, the, the bardo of becoming, is it the case that your body doesn't decompose or remains fresh? I don't know, but I'd be really surprised. The body's dead. And then there's no, there's, it's finished. I mean, there's not even any subtle consciousness there. So, and if, not, if you've not even realized clear light of death, then I don't know why it would remain fresh. So maybe it does, but if it does, that's news to me, and I would have no idea why that would be the case. So, there's one. And what bardo? Oh, that depends on all, on all kinds of things. Um, what was your previous karma? What was the quality of mind as you were dying? What are your aspirations? What are your prayers? Are you lucid in the bardo? You may be. You may be. If you've become a, an adept lucid dreamer, maybe no deep realization of emptiness or of rikpa, but you've achieved shamatha and you've become really good at lucid dreaming. And that's a good combo. You could do that. Without realization of emptiness or realization of rikpa, you could become very adept. Number one, you could achieve shamatha, of course. But you could also become very adept at lucid dreaming and make some headway in dream yoga. In which case, even if you kind of just, you know, get disoriented in the, when the clear light of death appears or the bardo of dhammata, uh, once this, you know, extremely dreamlike experience of the bardo of becoming, when that arises, you may very well recognize that bardo of becoming as the bardo of becoming. And when you have that recognition, then you have a lot more freedom, as you do in a lucid dream. Uh, if you don't recognize the bardo as the bardo, then pretty much you're thrown by your previous karma, your prayers, your aspirations, and so forth. And it could be all kinds of bardos. Okay? Hola, so... Bear in mind that De Devadatta, the Buddha's cousin, achieved not only shamatha, he achieved the fourth jhana, which is really pretty awesome. That's, and he had paranormal abilities. Pretty, pretty impressive ones. And then 
he went over to the dark side. You know, he lost his virtue, went over to malevolence and envy and tried to kill a Buddha. Uh, and so when he passed away, well, of course he lost his jhanas, he lost his samadhi. But that wasn't doing him any good. The samadhi that he had earlier in his life, before he lost it, uh, that was not doing him any good at all when he died. Too much drek in between. So there we are. Second question, what level of realization and degree of stability is ne is needed to be able to be liberated in the luminous bardo of the dhammata? Is this even possible without having attained shamatha? I would be surprised. I really would be surprised. To gain realization in the dhammata corresponds with the sambhogakaya. Um, what you'll be realizing, now we're really deeply into Dzogchen here, what you'll be realizing there is that all of the displays, all of these archetypal forms, the peaceful rattle deities and so forth, arising during the battle of the Dhanata, that they are none other than displays of Rikpa. If you've not realized Rikpa, how on earth you'd realize that these are displays of Rikpa? I, I can't imagine that one. So one must really have some realization of Rikpa. But if we're talking about Buddhahood here, because Buddhahood is possible by way of Dharmakaya, when the clear light of death arises, you may become Buddha right there, by way of Dharmakaya. Oh, in the bardo of Dharmata, achieve Buddhahood by way of Sambhogakaya, in the bardo of becoming, achieve Buddhahood by way of Nirmanakaya. But how you could become a Buddha without having achieved Shamatha is like, how can you master general relativity theory without having mastered basic arithmetic? I can't imagine. So there we are. Is it possible to gain some, some realization of rikpa, emptiness and so forth without shamatha? Yes. But that level, where you actually gain Buddhahood in the bardo of Dhammata, I'd be very surprised. Of course, I've been surprised before. You know, maybe somebody will do it and then come back to me in a dream and say, you were wrong, Buster. So here's a question for Kala. If Buddha Shakyamuni left the isolation of the palace and developed his Buddhahood in samsara, and if genuine happiness is within ourselves, why is it that Buddhism keeps teaching one should go to long-term isolation retreat to achieve shamatha? So the first part, the Buddha left the isolation of the palace. I don't know that he would call it the isolation of the palace. I mean, he had a harem. I don't know how you quite call that isolated. <laughs> I mean, lots of babes. <laughs> That's not my notion of isolation. That's my notion of big-time complexity. <laughs> Let alone having a wife and kid, and a father, and then all of the, the entourage, all the attendants in the palace. And, whenever, and he's a prince, so whenever he goes out, you know he's got to have a bodyguard, and he's going to have an entourage going wherever he goes. So I don't quite know why one called that. I, I mean, isolation from... The hoi polloi from people who are, you know, poor and having to make a living, kind of that kind of thing, and that kind of sense of isolation. Yes, but he developed his Buddha. He didn't develop. Well, he he realized Buddhahood. I don't think again we use the word developed his Buddhahood in samsara. It sounds like samsara is a place, but samsara is not a place. It is a a state of mind, really. Uh, so yeah, he went out, but he went out for six years of isolation. He went out for six years of living in relative solitude or complete solitude. It was in solitude that he achieved shamatha. A solitude he achieved the four jhanas and the four samapatis, the formless absorptions, 
achieve samadhi. He didn't do that while staying white, you know, by rocking his baby to sleep. You know. I mean, he went into retreat. And when he found that he wasn't satisfied with samadhi, then he went into more retreat. And he was practicing yoga and austerities and fasting and all kinds of things. That was out with these really hardcore yogis out in the jungle. So that was six years of retreat, and it was while in retreat that he then explored the extremes of asceticism, came back, got a good meal, and then it was once again in retreat, going back into solitary practice. Now he didn't even have his five companions with him anymore. They abandoned him because they thought he was a flake. They thought he was a flake. They did. They thought he'd gone soft. And so they abandoned him. He said, well, we, we still know how to fast. He, he's, eating, he's eating his rice and yogurt. You know, We're macho. And so then he was really on his own. But when he got his health back, then in solitude, sitting by himself under the Bodhi tree, then he achieved, he realized awakening. So that's how he did it. And then he went back. But even after, if we follow the teachings of the Buddha and his whole life story as it's recorded in the Pali Canon, did he even as a monk after he achieved enlightenment sometimes just retreat into the jungle and dwell in samadhi? The answer is yes, he did. He did. And sometimes he'd be teaching and he would go back and spend time with his family and he taught his son and his son became an arhat and his wife became a stream enterer and his dad became a, at least a stream enterer, if not an arhat. can't remember all the details. But, um, but even then he was going in and out of solitude, sometimes engaging, sometimes going to solitude. So, why does Buddhism, why, why do Buddhism teach that one should go to long-term isolation retreat to achieve shamatha? Uh, well, if one can, make more progress during your meditative practice, during formal sessions, then you lose in between sessions, then stay home. Why not? Right? If you spend f five hours in formal meditation, you have 11 hours, not formal meditation, but you're making more headway in those five hours than you're losing in the 11 hours, there's no need. Then why not just achieve shamat at home? Save rent. You know? Airfare, transportation, and all that kind of thing. Um, it so much depends on what you're doing if you're practicing formally for five hours. It so much depends on what you're doing for the 11 hours. If you're living in a, and I, some of my students, one in particular comes to mind, very sincere, dedicated, good motivation, good discipline, all good, 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 good. And his parents, so kind, I've never met them, so kind, supportive. They said, go for it. You know, he wants to achieve shamatha. They said, go for it. Here's the spare room. And we'll, we'll give you food and we'll support you in every way we can. And you can stay right here at home and achieve it. It's very kind, really supportive parents. I say this with only appreciation and admiration. Of course, as soon as he steps out of his room, stepping into a room where the television may be going on, the telephone is ringing, people coming and going, talking about their lives. And so even though he's there just for retreat, he's not working, that, and his parents are totally supporting him in this. It's, it's challenging. And it's nobody's fault. His parents, what more could you ask? I mean, you give them in a room, they're supporting him in everything. But they're not in Shamatha retreat. They're leading their lives, which is a pretty reasonable thing to do. But leading your lives in the world, in this 21st century, uh, is very different from leading the contemplative way of life oriented towards the achievement of Shamatha. So if your nearest neighbors are living that kind of lifestyle, as soon as you step out of your room, you're in a very different environment. It's difficult. It is difficult. So, I think there's really a lot of ground to be explored there. 
that is between being totally immersed in a socially engaged, active way of life, for which the chances of chimichamata are negligibly small, uh, to being, on the one hand, and there's nothing wrong with that, that's a, maybe a fantastic mm, opportunity to develop the four measurables. Really, really good. Engaging every person you encounter, practice the four measurables. On the one hand, and the other hand, living in total solitude, applying yourself single-pointedly to the shamatha, is there any, 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 anything in between? And Andrea, uh, what I heard from Gen Tutopla, I heard, but you, you, you might have even been the interpreter, so I have only hearsay. So if what I'm about to say is wrong, just let me know right now, okay? What I heard from this extraordinary geshe, I met him, just one of those yogis, yogi, spent like 35 years in solitude, I think. An old, uh, geshe, marvelous meditator. I just, you couldn't ask for more. Uh, he was teaching in Italy, I think, on probably more than one occasion, I think, wasn't he? Yeah. And what I heard, now that you're saying it, I'm up in California, so what do I know? But I had heard when this question came up to him, who spent decades in retreat, marvelously accomplished yogi, do we need to be in, in total solitude to achieve or progress along the path to shamatha? And if not, how much time do we need to put in each day to be able to really start making progress and not just maintain the mental hygiene of you know, keeping a little bit on balance and otherwise. And what I heard him say, what I heard through the grapevine was, he said three hours a day may be sufficient. Did you hear anything like that? I say again? Have you heard any 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 uh, answer to, from him at all to that question? Okay, I heard it. I don't know whether it's true. I would say that's a bare minimalist. Go ahead. I could very discreet. Yeah. No, what in tantra? Didn't didn't talk about tantra at all. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. So, as I said, all I can say this is a rumor that might might or not be true. I would say that that would be a really a minimalist approach. Three hours would, would imply if you can make progress, the other the other thirteen hours better be darn good. Really, really, really good. So it's a simple pragmatic issue. It's not a doctrinal issue. Buddhism says you should do this. It's simply that to balance the mind to such an extraordinary degree of finesse, of precision, where you've outgrown even subtle excitation and subtle laxity, the mind so extraordinarily honed, like a fine precision instrument, um, it's just overall much more efficient to do that in solitude as we, as I narrated yesterday, going into a conducive environment, living with contentment, having few desires, very few activities and concerns, maintaining pure ethical discipline, and releasing as much as you possibly can the obsessive and compulsive ideation. It's just the most efficient way. It's not a doctrinal, it's not a sectarian, it's not a dogmatic or religious issue. It's just, what's the most efficient way to achieve shamatha? And overall, to be in a conducive environment, living an utterly simple lifestyle, and it does not have to be in total isolation. In fact, especially if you're relatively, you know, if you're not like a geshe top ten, if you're not a really, a really accomplished old hand at meditation, if this is after some good preparation, if this is your first retreat, 
maybe one or two year retreat to see about achieving shamatha. It can be really optimal not to be in total isolation, but to have two or three friends, spiritual friends, who are all practicing something similar. So one's not doing yamantaka, and another one in doing chit, and you're doing shamatha, and then you have nothing to talk about. You know, except for would you please not hit that drum anymore? It's driving me crazy. <laughs> So it's good to have, as they say, tawa, tawa tumba, jiba tumba, to be having similar views. So not, you know, you don't have debates between galupas and yumapas or Christians and Buddhists and so forth. There's a place for that, but not in retreat. And so your view, to, your, your view is similar, your practice is similar. Then there can really be some group energy in that. That can be very helpful. And of course, if you have an access to it, an accomplished teacher, all the better. So isolation is not necessarily the best way to go, but simplicity of lifestyle generally is. That's that. And now the big one. Thana, I, Aiden. Oh, back to this. I will, what I'm going to do, Aiden, you're, since we're back to determinism, is I will uh, find your email and I'll send you my paper. Okay? From the Journal of Consciousness. I can tell you, send you the PDF. Um, we touched on determinism, not self, and where the nexus of choice, and where the nexus of choice might be. The Buddha, if I'm correct, uh, if I'm correct, Never, there is no self. Never said there is no self. You are correct. He did not. He said, "I do not say there is no self." That's what he said. And you do not. I do not say there is a self. Of one occasion in the Pali Canon, but did, did he ever flat out refute the existence of the self altogether? In other words, you don't exist, and I don't exist either. No, that would be foolish. So you're quite right. But said from experiential observation, most notably in the five aggregates, it can't be found, despite as having a deeply intuitive uh, belief, it is there. Yes, is there? Is there in addition to these five aggregates? Is there in addition to them either totally separate as some independent, autonomous, and unchanging self like that, or in a more subtle notion of grasping somehow the self mingling? The analogy given in the classic philosophical literature is like a a, a, a chief merchant in a community of merchants, in a community of merchants. So among the five skandhas, there's also the self um, kind of among them, like within the trees, and kind of there, but not totally separate. But the self, while being right there in the midst of the thoughts, emotions, desires, the body and so forth, not quite as impermanent as the body and mind. So the, the mind, of course, is always changing. And the body, especially old ones, go gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. You know, they, they bubble away a lot, you know. So their their old bodies are kind of falling apart faster than the younger bodies. So so, but not quite as impermanent as the body, not as impermanent as the mind. Somehow a little bit more durable, a little bit more lingering, that sense. And moreover, as in the classic teachings, the chief, the chief merchant, like the boss, like the CEO of the company, who is there within, you know, fraternizes with the work with the with the employees. But after all, is the boss. So that's one type of delusional notion of self within the aggregates. Quite so. So it can't be found despite quite so. As you said, we should keep acting as though there is free will. That's not what it says in Buddhism. It's, it's because again, free will is not something that we just have. It's something that we obviously don't have insofar as our minds are deluded. It's a gradient. To the extent that my mind is still, it's called zhenwang, under the domination of, 
craving, hostility, and delusion, to the extent that that's true, I'm not free. To the extent that. And it's a gradient. So if I'm drunk, I'm really, you know, very deeply under their domination. If I'm clear, I'm right in the midst of my shamatha practice, I'm relatively free. But once I've gained realization of emptiness, I'm more free than once I've gone, you know, and, that, and there it is. So it's not a matter of, okay, just assume you have it or pretend you have it or imagine you have it and now let's carry on. Because, well, why should you assume you have it if you don't know whether you have it? What you know is, often we're not very free at all. Uh, but do not assume that you have none. Because that also is a metaphysical assumption. So don't make that assumption. I have no free will. Now what shall I do? <laughs> well, there's no answer to that question. <laughs> right? So don't... I think when really in Buddhist practice you just don't need to start your practice with a metaphysical assumption. Either that you do have free will or that you have no free will. Just say, hey, how free are you? When you want to wait, make a wise decision, how wise do your decisions turn out to be? And then judge for yourself. How free, retrospectively, how free was I there? Oh, I saw there was some selfishness that got in, some short-sightedness, some greed, some anger, what have you. So it's very empirical and it's very non-metaphysical. Uh, but there we are. Jump into the practice, unless you're already persuaded it's, it's pointless, in which case there's no reason to read any further. Uh, and then purifying our minds. Yeah, purifying your mind. Develop that. Recognizing Sometimes you make relatively good choices. Sometimes we do. So how, let's make those more often. And let's make them wiser and more compassionate and wiser and more compassionate. So we're in a flow there. We're not starting out at zero and we're not starting out with the statement, I do have free will. We're starting in a continuum and then we can see what modes of behavior, what modes, what states of mind diminish our, the wisdom of our will and which ones allow the wisdom of our will to manifest more clearly without impediment. So, as perhaps there is some free will to be found between the poles of not-self. Yeah, I think I've explained that, though. It's not like... It's so easy to reify free will as if it's something. Do I have it or not? Like, you know, a spare key. You know? Uh, and I don't think it's useful to refi- reify it. Because as soon as, you, as soon as you reify it, you have to define it. It, it. And then then we get all the philosophical conundrums. Do you have it or not? And if you do have it, who are you? And how do you get it? Were you born with it? And what's your relationship to it? And is free will, free will, is that really something that somehow stands outside of the nexus of causality? And if it's outside of the nexus of causality, doesn't that make it a little bit nuts? that, you know, it's just kind of unhinged from the reality of cause and effect. And so, I think the real Buddhist orientation here is we just launch pragmatically, rather than launching ontologically. Uh, and pragmatically, sometimes we're more free and sometimes we're less free. So, could you, however, could you go into how this can be held with a view on non-action or aimlessness and that it is ultimate but it should be working through versus that thinking that it, I, that is purifying and developing myself is likely to be riddled with delusion. So, yeah, this does raise a very, very deep issue, and I think it's actually a very relevant issue, but it's more a question of when to raise it. And that is, give, I give my own, ex- I give an anecdote from my own life. I think I was about 22, no older than 20, I don't think I was 23, I don't think I was a monk yet, about 1972 or so. And I came across an image of Kala Chakra. 
And if you've seen it, it looks a lot like Chakrasamvara or Gwe Samaji. It doesn't really... Not that special. I mean, it's a blue deity with a golden consort, so, you know. But somehow I looked at it and I was just really, I was drawn to it. For no good reason. It was a one rupee, one of those old funky one rupee color prints. But I, oh, that's Kalachaka. And I somehow just wanted to know more about it. So, you know, I was still in diapers, basically, when it comes to dramas. I've been studying for maybe one year. So, really, really basic. Really, really basic. And I'm studying now, I, I was looking at this deity, which is representing the most complex integrated system in all of Atrayana. I mean, it's just incredible. It's incredibly sophisticated, very complex, so multidimensional. It's vast. And I'm still kind of working on addition and subtraction. It was like, you know, asking about, you know, getting really intrigued about general, 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 theory, general relativity theory. So, but I was intrigued. And, not over-encumbered with humility. <laughs> and so I went to the junior tutor, Kefji Tijanamachi, and I said, you know, I saw this image of Kalachakra and I've heard Wheel of Time, sounds kind of cool. Can I, uh, can I study that? Can, can I learn that? And, you know, and just the incredible benevolence that he just embodied at all times. And he looked at me with this incredible benevolence and said, very good, not just yet. <laughs> so there are some questions that can be are very good questions but the timing is premature okay? this may be one of them what is before we realize Rikpa before we realize emptiness before we realize Shamatha how does Rikpa impact the choices we make from day to day because Rikpa by nature is free Rikpa is unconditioned. It's beyond the whole nexus of causality. It's primordially free. Primordially liberated. There was no one point that it got liberated. Primordially uh, pure. Originally pure. And it's dynamic. It displays in the world of this and that. And it is the deepest dimension of our own being here. So does it percolate up? Does it manifest in our day-to-day life before we realize Rikpa, before emptiness, before shamati? The answer is yes. Is it relevant to the whole question of free will? How could it not be? How exactly does it impact the coarse mind? I think that's one of those questions. Realize it first and ask the question second. It's a very good question. But I think until one is realized, Rikpa, it'll just be fueling the conceptual mind to try to grasp conceptually that which cannot be grasped conceptually. Could you touch on the parallels from Judeo-Christianity? Grace, from the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. I've heard of that one before, yeah. Uh, it's, it's good. It's a very meaningful and long question. Um, I've written about this one, this topic at length also in the book, already published, called Mind and the Balance. Goes into quite some detail. And follows parallels in the Christian tradition. And this is, I don't deal with a single heretic. Because they're too, they're kind of a bit too easy. Uh, Origen was actually a church father, so to call him a heretic is a bit complicated. He was a church father, according to the Roman Catholic Church, and he believed in reincarnation. But he's the farthest limb I went out on. But mostly I'm relying on the, on the desert fathers, the, the early Greek Orthodox in the 13th century, the Neoplatonic tradition in Western Europe, and really culminating in one of my favorites, and that's Nicholas of Cusa in the 15th century. Incredible, incredible man. So multifaceted. 
Um, so I draw on him a lot as kind of like, the, in a way, the real flowering of this whole tradition, uh, the Neoplatonic tradition within Christian mysticism. And I show parallels there, finding parallels in mindfulness of breathing, the Christians have it. Settling the mind is natural state, the Christians have it. Awareness of awareness, the Christians have it. And then teachings on emptiness, um, Hilary Putnam, who's a practicing Jew and Harvard philosopher, one of the cream of the cream in, in among American philosophers, uh, he's written a couple of books, uh, Realism with a Human Face and The Many Faces of Realism, that look quite remarkably like Madhyamaka. It's quite astonishing. And he did not study Buddhism as far as I know. I don't think he has any interest in it. And he's a practicing Jew. And these teachings look an awful lot like Madhyamaka. And then there's Basvan Frassen. He's another of the cream of the cream of, of American philosophers of science. He's at Princeton University. I think he must be retired by now. I met him in Paris several years back. He's a devout Roman Catholic. And he's written, he's written areas that are clearly a challenge to metaphysical realism. Very clearly. Charles Taylor is Roman Catholic. He's English, trained at Oxford, I believe, taught at Oxford. He was teaching for years in... Uh, Canada and then at Northwestern University in Chicago, devout Christian, Roman Catholic. His teachings, his book called Sources of the Self, really challenges the objective status of self as one more entity. And he is a devout Christian. So that needs to be taken into account, that these are really heavy hitters. Hilary Putnam, Jew, Bas von Frossen, Roman Catholic, Charles Taylor, anybody who knows modern philosophy, these are very big names. Really big names. And it's remarkable because these three religious people in a world that is, you know, not exactly sympathetic to religion. So there's that. And then when it comes to Rikpa, there I would go to Nicholas of Cusa. And actually the whole Neoplatonic tradition is quite remarkable. There are parallels there. And I cite all this. This is an academic book. So I cite all my sources. And, uh, and then you can draw your own conclusions. Okay? But it's very rich, very rich feeling. Very interesting. Oh, la so? So? So, when it comes to lucid dreaming and any preparations in terms of questions that come up about shall I keep a dream journal and so forth, I would really strongly encourage you prioritize, first of all, getting a good night's sleep. I would encourage you not to aspire to sleep less any more than when you're going to the dinner. Unless you already know you're overeating, then of course, aspire to eat less. But aspire to eat just what your body needs. No more, no less. And if it's a lot, I mean, some of you are young. If I ate as much as you did, I would be sick all day. I just have indigestion all day. I saw some of you young guys, too playful. (laughs) And you're not overeating. You know, you're eating what your body needs. And I'm an older dude, so I don't need so much. You know, so I just eat to eat what my body needs. So as with food, so with sleep. Don't wish that you could sleep less. Uh, just like letting the in-breath flow in. Just let it flow in as much as it needs. And then flood as much as it needs. Sleep as much as you need. And when you wake up in the morning, you feel bright, clear, then start the day. Be happy. Be relaxed. See you tomorrow. <laughs>